This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, welcome back to ICU Rounds. I get a lot of requests to do um, podcasts and discussions on various elements of fluid resuscitation. What are the different types of fluid compartments? What are the different types of fluids? What is all this stuff that we're hearing about? Uh, limited resuscitations, different types of blood transfusion strategies, uh, giving what we call one-to-one blood component therapy. About a year ago, I did a podcast interview with a colleague and a dear friend of mine, Dr. Brian Cotton, on another podcast called uh, MedTalk Network, and you can find that on www.medtalknetwork.com. This interview was done uh, several months ago, Dr. Uh, Brian Cotton. At that point, he was on faculty here at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Uh, as I've said, he recently took a job, a wonderful job, uh, at the University of Texas, Houston. And uh, he will be successful there, I'm sure more successful there than he has been even at Vanderbilt. For those of you at uh, UT Houston, uh, you're going to be very blessed with a very gifted uh, educator, researcher, and clinician. And uh, he's a very dear friend of mine. So without any further ado, I want to share this interview that I did last year with Dr. Brian Cotton, both as an educational tool for all our listeners, but also as a way of kind of honoring uh, my friend. I hope you enjoy this. He complained of rapidly progressing vision loss. ECG was done, which showed T-wave inversions and multiple leads. Today's medical world is rapidly changing. This is a MedTalk Network podcast from the online network for medical professionals. His blood pressure was 135 over 99. Thoughtful experts offer a unique perspective on complex medical topics that will make a difference in the way you practice medicine. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Maybe it's even in the middle of the night, depending on where you are as you're listening. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy, an associate professor of surgery and director of the Vanderbilt Regional Burn Center. Welcome to Surgery IC Rounds. Today we're going to be talking about changes in fluid and blood resuscitation in the critically injured patient. And I'm lucky to have as a guest today on our program Dr. Brian Cotton. Dr. Cotton is a specialist in emergency general surgery, trauma surgery, and surgical critical care. He is currently assistant professor of surgery in the Division of Trauma and Emergency Surgery and the director of the surgical critical care at the Tennessee Valley VA Medical Center, both located in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a member of the Association for Academic Surgery, the Society for Critical Care Medicine, and the American College of Surgeons, the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and the Eastern Association of Surgery of Trauma. In the last four years, Dr. Cotton has kept himself busy. He's authored 25 papers, nine book chapters, and has delivered approximately 25 invited lectures. His research focuses primarily on resuscitation of early hemorrhage, hyperadrenergic states following head injury, and delirium in the surgical intensive care unit. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Jeff. You've written some uh, pretty interesting stuff over the past year that is, has been well lauded in the literature as well as at meetings, particularly uh, what I'm thinking about is the article that you wrote in Shock that was the lead article uh, back in December where you kind of looked at where we've been and, and where we're at and perhaps where we should be going in fluid resuscitation. I'm just curious as to what you think we, we're doing right and what do you think we're doing wrong? That's a good uh, good question. Uh 
to better understand where we are now, I think, and how we've gotten here, it's important to look back at the road traveled to actually to get us to where we are, the fluid resuscitation state. You know, you, you probably recall back in your residency the carefully titrated fluids and, and the small boluses given for patients based on physiology such as tachycardia, lower blood pressure, low urine output, and the you know, very strict INOs that were recorded in these patients. But during the early portion of the 90s and even some in the late 80s, we had this explosion in surgical critical care and trauma where a lot of invasive lines were going in, uh, not only just arterial lines, but central lines, PA catheters, many times in the pre-hospital setting, some of these things. And we were started this explosion of bolusing trauma patients in the bay, bolusing them in the pre-hospital setting, and basically forgetting where ATLS had brought us. And then uh, even, even a, a more concerning thing is that even though we were trying to, to titrate these fluids to their effect, or at least what we thought we could get away with, it ended up being extrapolated to patients that were not necessarily the young, healthy trauma patient that could handle it. And if you, you, know, if you look back, it, it goes back even to the 50s and 60s where we are today, which was you know, carefully titrated fluid volumes coming out of, of, of Shires and, and Moore and colleagues looking at this. And then the, the, the big change, I think, uh, as far as the paradigm, came from probably like Shoemaker and colleagues in the early 80s when they started the concept of the supernormal resuscitation. And prior to that, it had been very much a moderation is king, which is actually what it, um, elicited the, the moderation uh, editorial by both Moore and Shires. And what that Shoemaker article did was pushing the, short, the supernormal resuscitation to be almost a norm. And if your patient didn't tolerate that supernormal resuscitation, they, it was at least felt that they would die. And if they didn't and if you didn't deliver it, you were being, you were committing malpractice. Well, a very interesting thing historically is about the same time, Harlan Stone down, and colleagues down in Atlanta came up with this, you know, very novel concept of an abbreviated laparotomy, what we call now as damage control or the open abdomen. And they were damage controlling patients based on the initial, you know, acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy, which prior to, to, to instituting this type of process of damage control, although it was not called that at the time, they were able to actually do all the procedures and effectively kill the patient over that eight-hour period where they had basically taken care of everything and walked out of the patient with a uh, or walked out of the OR with a patient that was not alive, although all their injuries were addressed. And then it wasn't until you know probably 1993 when Rotundo and colleagues at Penn actually came up with the name damage control, which stuck a little bit more, I think, maybe in the psyche or the machismo world of trauma. And they actually were showing that patients undergoing this damage control concept had a significant significantly better survival than those getting everything addressed at once. And so about this time, they were leaving their bellies open for a good reason, so that they could correct that lethal triad of coagulopathy, hypothermia, acidosis. And at at this same time, you've got this concept or this push to have this supernormal resuscitation from Shoemaker, and we end up with all these open abdomens and all this abdominal compartment syndrome that we're kind of just two paths crossing in the night, and we don't put two and two together. And soon enough, the open abdomen became an acceptable option because we were treating abdominal compartment syndrome, which was killing people as well. And the open abdomen was now seen as fashionable because of damage control surgery. But unfortunately, that aggressive resuscitation approach and the subsequent development of ACS continues to this day. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it's getting a little bit less uh, uh, intense as far as the amount of it. And I think some of the, some of the swing back towards the, the normal resuscitation or the more reasonable moderation of fluid 
fluids has really come out in the last probably five years, and a lot of that, unfortunately, being spurred by uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, conflicts. But we've we've seen how they are managing their soldiers over there, and how much better their survival is, and how they're able to extricate these patients from these from these hostile settings with basically no IV fluid, maybe maybe an IV or an aerosol line, and just basically titrating uh, fluids to effect just to keep them awake and maybe with a, with a palpable pulse. And so I think that's been a huge, you know, back and forth change in the, in the last 50 years as far as surgery and trauma have gone as far as the fluid resuscitation. So I think we've definitely swung our, paradigm, our, 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 our pendulum back to where it ought to be, which is what Moore and Shires initially had, had really sought out, which was moderation. You know, it's interesting that you, you talk about that because when the Maddox group, uh, and I, my apologies to the first author, but it'll Bickle. always refer to the Maddox. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. But that was in almost 14 years ago that they published the idea of fluid conservation or, or not resuscitating the penetrating trauma. And that was really viewed then as, wow, this is really heretical and, and, and progressive. But when you look back historically, Moss wrote, uh, I believe, in, in like 1908 or 1910 in the Journal of uh, the American Medical Association, basically the same thing is to not resuscitate somebody with penetrating trauma. Now, you, you went back in the 60s and you're talking about Dr. Shires. For our listeners who, who may not be aware of that landmark research by Dr. Shires and his dogs that he resuscitated, can you go back to how what Dr. Shires found when he hemorrhaged dogs and versus hemorrhaging dogs who got shed blood alone versus shed blood with a, a crystalloid? What he was finding is that some of the patients that were actually getting the crystalloid with the blood seemed to be doing better versus uh, or hemorrhaging, you know, their survival was improved versus those who were just getting blood alone. And I don't think, you know, that's that kind of caught on, at least in the in the dog model, that they ended up translating into trauma and then unfortunately even to the, some of the burn patients. And the damage control, I mean, it seemed like in the early 90s where damage control kind of came in vogue is that we would leave a patient open even in the operating room, not even take them out of the operating room and resuscitate them there in the theater with, you know, trying to get their coagulopathy and rewarming them and finishing the definitive operation hours later. And it seems that's kind of migrated too to, we kind of stuff them with sponges and, and, and towel clip them or put an ioban on them and bring them back in sunlight. Do you think that changes the physiology at all by, by waiting? Well, by waiting, I mean, that was the initial concept, or at least the initial thing that both Harlan Stone and colleagues found, as well as the, as the, as the group in Pennsylvania, which was correcting them in their acidosis, their, their, their hypothermia, and their coagulopathy, and then returning when the patient's physiology had corrected, not just doing it real time. And, you know, whether you do it in a three hours, you know, six hours, 12 hours, no one's really giving you a hardcore time estimate, but it, it, it appears that those who resuscitate a little bit more slowly, perhaps over the course of a 24-hour, and are taken back in a very, you know, during the light of day, like you said, with the A-team operating, with the fresh team going back, because you've already, if you think about it, you, and, and you know this as well, you've already addressed the life-threatening injuries, the soil, the contamination, the things that are going to kill that patient you've already dealt with in that initial operation. The other things of bowel continuity, um, abdominal wall closure, things like that can, can be revised afterwards. And, and, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a dynamic process. I mean, during this, this resuscitation, like you're talking about, you, during what we call phase two of damage control, you're going to IR if you need to to embolize parts of the liver. You're still getting workups for head injuries, putting in ICP monitors, doing other things that are going to correct this patient to get them 
him in that door-to-door fashion, corrected and ready for prime time for the for the for the team to take back over that patient, take that patient back to the operating room and finish the case that was initially uh, hoped to have started. And I think one of the big differences in in different training programs or different mindsets, especially uh, now, it's that we're going in understanding we're going to leave this patient open because they're coming in an extremist. We're not going to allow ourselves to get taken away by the by the beauty of the procedure we're doing by the by the blood in our face by the contamination by think by the level of injuries we're going to focus on what's killing that patient and we're going to get them out and get them to a safer happier place which is usually where we where we're controlling which is in the critical care unit versus the operating theater which is like you mentioned earlier is probably fine as long as you're really truly directing that patient's care and and truly monitoring the resuscitation but so often when when that ether screen goes up there's a separation of church and state there and a complete separation of, of the minds and we don't communicate as well. And I think when you've got that damage control concept and you get back and it's your team on your turf back in the ICU, I think that we communicate amongst ourselves better than we do, unfortunately, during the operating room. Well, I want to ask you who's the church and who's the state on the other side of the ether screen. You, you, you did mention, you know, it's, we've, we've learned quite a bit about our trauma colleagues uh, serving the, in the military about how they're taking care of, of war combat, uh, combat injuries. And the Journal of Trauma, it was 2003 2004, had a whole supplement on uh, the military strategy to resuscitation. And as you point out, they walk up to somebody and if they're mentating, they're fine. If they've got a radial pulse, they're fine and they won't even start IVs. Uh, aside from that, though, uh, we've also learned that they're using different types of IV fluids. And the Institute of Medicine has kind of signed off that maybe we're not even using the right strategy. You know, maybe we're giving too much IV fluid, but maybe we're not even giving the right IV fluid. What, what are your thoughts on that? That's a that's a very good very good point. The you know like you mentioned, they're bringing up this one to one to one resuscitation concept in in the presence of again a permissive hypotension uh, titrated like what you were talking about with the physiology mental status and not just based on a, a hardcore blood pressure. Um, but, but as far as the fluids, there have been there there are ongoing research as far as what fluid is best, what fluid is king, and I think part of the necessity early on, it just it kind of one of those random occurrences that happened in the military out of necessity, which was they needed to carry a smaller, more concentrated bag of fluid. They couldn't carry these big liters of of normal normal saline or lactate ringers in their bags. These special forces people, and they were forced to carry these hundred, two hundred fifty you know ml bags of hypertonic saline and, and things like that. And what we found is that those fluids at least do a good of a job, if not better, in some of these hemorrhagic shock states. It's still up for debate as far as maybe how good they are when it comes to something along the lines of of, of head injury, uh, although they definitely can have their place in a head injury management. But in a hemorrhagic shock model and in a hemorrhagic shock setting such as uh, uh, in, in, in a penetrating trauma civilian setting or military, it seems to uh, have at least as good of, a, of an experience, if not better. And again, I think a lot of that, is some, look as closely at some of those studies, it's a lot of its patients uh, selection. But, I mean, the hypertonic saline has definitely caught on, and it actually, uh, when we did the EAST guidelines, we just finished the uh, uh, presenting those at the Eastern Association for Surgery Trauma, the EAST guidelines on pre-hospital resuscitation. One, uh, unfortunately, there was not enough data to give a hard, hard stance on what exactly we should be doing as far as which fluid choice, but I can tell you that uh, there was a definite level of data uh, in, in animal models and in some humans that hypertonic saline is probably a superior fluid. Yeah, it's interesting that we've learned in the treatment of acute lung injury or ARDS that how we ventilated the patients for the past 15 or 20 years 
is perhaps pro-inflammatory. We're actually perhaps hurting people in our treatment as much as we are trying to help them. And it seems interesting that, uh, you know, when you look at the different isomers of lactated ringers, that, uh, you know, some of the fluids and the way you resuscitate it may be pro-inflammatory itself, and, and maybe we need to take a step back. You mentioned one-to-one-to-one uh, transfusion practices. Um, this was something that the military seems to have grasped on quite a bit. It's starting to, we're seeing it more on the civilian side. Uh, share that. Share more about that with me. Sure, sure. Real quick before I answer that, the hypertonic. You're absolutely right. These things not just do uh, they mobilize in you know cellular water and normalizing cell volume, but they actually seem to be. A lot, and this comes out of Marty Schreiber's uh, experience, a friend of mine at, at uh, Portland, Oregon, who has done a lot of work, mostly again animal models, where he, and in some human uh, serum type studies, has actually shown a significant amount of, of inflammatory marker uh, or decrease in inflammatory markers when you're utilizing hypertonic saline and, 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 and solutions such as this versus the traditional lactated ringers and or, and or normal saline uh, or even uh, other solutions. Uh, but it, the hypertonic, again, definitely seems to have some level of attenuation of some of that hyperdynamic response and some of that hyperinflammatory response. But as far as the one-to-one goes, the, the military and, and, and their damage control resuscitation, which is what they've been uh, have been calling it, has come across what they feel, based on their literature and based on some of the civilian literature, is a better model of resuscitation. And, and if you think about it, it's I'm not say it's a no-brainer, but it almost is. One-to-one-to-one most, most reasonably approximates whole blood. And what they found... Yeah, the one-to-one-to-one, because since we didn't specify that, what does that mean oh, to somebody sorry. who's not familiar sure, with that? Sure, sure. So, so basically, you know, the traditional, uh, at least when I was trained, you know, you had to give like 10 units of, of cracked red blood cells before you even thought about FFP, and then only if the INR was disturbed. Platelets almost never happened. Versus now, you know, they, they've taken this to where the soldier gets one unit of blood, well, at the same time, they're getting a unit of plasma, and they're getting a pack, pack of uh, platelets at the same time. And this continues until the surgeon and the anesthesiologist think that they've achieved both medical and surgical hemostasis. And this is much higher in any, than any, you know, as far as ratios go, than anything we'd even thought about or even, even considered. Uh, in fact, it's even more aggressive than some of the other uh, civilian setting uh, transfusion ratios that are out there. But in doing it, they're approximating whole blood and both the whole blood that they've transfused, because they have a, obviously a uh, a nice, clean, pre-screened uh, tap of, of whole blood volunteers over there, real-time, to actually use it. It's much more difficult to pull off in a civilian setting. But they're using this whole blood and getting about the same outcomes as they're getting with this one-to-one-to-one. And in doing this, they're obviously able to partition out the products a little bit better and utilize them a little more economically and be able to translate that more into the civilian setting where whole blood, again, is, is very difficult to get and process uh, real-time for trauma centers. And Again, that, their, their experience in survival has been impressive with or without uh, adjuncts such as Factor 7. Just with that whole blood ratio and, and process alone, they've been getting some pretty impressive numbers in reduction in, in, in mortality versus what is expected. And is that something that we should be applying in a civilian setting? I mean, some would argue, well, the military, you know, they're, they're seeing 30 percent um, uh, mortality rates. It's all penetrating. They have real logistical issues. We have essentially limitless blood banks. So, you know, maybe what works downrange in a military trauma situation, maybe we shouldn't apply that in a civilian trauma situation. No, I think it's a great, a great point as well. But if you think about it, the majority of deaths from trauma occur in the first few hours 
And if you look at the causes of it, central nervous system injury is number one. But very close behind it, as far as causes of death, is hemorrhage in those first few hours uh, after arrival of the trauma center. In fact, once you actually get to the operating room, 80% of deaths are due to exsanguination. And in the first 24 hours, 50% of deaths are due to exsanguinating hemorrhage. And if you think about it on another level, you know, we're only, you know, central nervous system interventions, as much as we like to think to how much little interventions here and there and studies here and there have actually helped brain injury. In the last 10 years, you and I both have looked at head injury outcomes, and they haven't been that much improved. Spinal cord injury has not been that much improved. We have something that can rapidly either control exsanguination or even prevent it, that hemorrhagic coagulopathy, real time. I, I think we'd be foolish not to, to at least try and engage it. And, and the military has done it, and they've done it effectively. And now civilian settings and civilian centers have actually picked up on that, uh, many of them in a one-to-one ratio, uh, such as uh, places in Houston and in, in, in uh, Charity Hospital in New Orleans, uh, whereas other centers, such as uh, at Vanderbilt and in a few other places, have gone in a little bit less aggressive fashion, but much more aggressive than in the past, such as you know, maybe three for every three units of blood, they're not getting three units of plasma, but they're getting two. For every you know, five units of blood, maybe they're not getting five packs of platelets, but they're getting one or two packs of platelets. So it's a much more aggressive than at least historically, and the outcomes seem to be already improved real-time in the civilian setting. And again, I think that's even more impressive when you're, when you're doing it with or without factor seven or, or other clotting factors and think, or hemostatic agents when you're seeing these outcomes, which are dramatically changed uh, since the, the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts have occurred, and we've adopted some of these uh, principles that the military has, has brought on, because we, we are seeing a, quite a significant amount of, of penetrating trauma in the U.S., as well as some significant blunt trauma that just gets beyond our, our blood bank's ability to, to keep up. It becomes a logistic nightmare of actually trying to you know, collaborate with them, collaborate with anesthesia on the other side of the screen to get the blood products delivered and get it in this, in this ratio that we want without going through a, a significant amount of hurdles, which by the time we get labs back and we actually have a conversation with the colleague on the other side, it's too late. You know, it, it, the, the, those labs are old, the conversation's old, and the patient's exsanguinated. Well, Dr. Cotton, I really wanted to thank you for joining me today. You certainly have given us a lot to think about and certainly a topic that's right on the razor's edge about what's uh, provocative, not only in trauma surgery, but also in critical care. We're wrapping it up now for this edition of Surgery IC Rounds, and special thanks goes to my guest, Dr. Brian Cotton, Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery in the Division of Trauma Emergency Surgery and Critical Care at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you. Bye-bye. So there you have it. That is an interview with Dr. Brian Cotton that has appeared on the Med Talk Network podcast, uh, IC Rounds. Uh, you can get uh, further podcasts from Med Talk. That is copyrighted material, and they, I'm certainly sure they would appreciate it if you visited their site. And that's on www.medtalknetwork.com. Other things going on here at ICU Rounds. Uh, if you enjoy the content we're giving you, by all means, uh, please visit uh, the iTunes uh, site and give uh, some feedback. We appreciate that. Uh, also, we have a site on Facebook. And the intent of that site is to allow exchange and dialogue and questions among our various listeners. Uh, I've, it's my opinion that a lot of times people learn more from themselves than they do any one person instructing, in my opinion, is true even with the podcast. So if you've got ideas about programs, um, 
uh, different uh, uh, opinions on what we're saying and we're like to discuss with various peers. Uh, by all means, check out that on uh, Facebook. It's on IC Rounds as a member group. Uh, additionally, check out our other content on the internet. Um, the podcast pre- Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, also available free on iTunes. Um, if you are a pre-hospital professional, this is right up your alley. If you're not a pre-hospital professional, uh, it's my opinion that you will certainly learn a lot from this podcast and I'm probably going to do some posts um, posting of those podcasts on this site as well. I learned a great deal writing that textbook, and uh, there are a lot of medications and concepts on there that will value any provider in the ICU or otherwise. Additionally, you can get a hold of me through uh, my website, burndoc.com. Thanks for listening to the ICU Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Have a great day. 